We're going to continue. This is going to be the, the last message in this August series of looking at scriptures, as Pastor Danny said, looking at scriptures that settle us, that anchor us, that calm us in times of confusion and disillusionment. As I've shared throughout this month, through my sabbatical, I listened to lots of unscripted conversations. And I heard a lot of people, some of them didn't even know I was a pastor, heard a lot of people share their disillusionment with the church, some their disillusionment with Christ. And as I listened to those conversations, and as I watched you know, current events um, with the church, and, and as I was disappointed with some parts of the church, I came to the realization that I want, I've said this each week, I want a better faith, I want a better church, and I want a better me. Which means that through these, the months that I was away, I realized that I am in an active process of deconstructing and reconstructing my Christian faith. And I hope that you are as well. So we've been looking at these scriptures. Next month we're gonna look at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and we're going to see how Jesus deconstructs faith. Because nobody deconstructed faith more than Jesus did. We're going to watch how he did that. But this month, we've been looking for scriptures that strengthen us so that we have the energy. Because it takes energy to listen to our, our um, disillusionment, to listen to our discomfort. It takes energy to do that without giving up. And so we've been looking at scriptures that that anchor and strengthen us so that we have what it takes to partner with the Holy Spirit in what the Spirit wants to create, the new thing that he wants to do in our life and in this generation of the church. And John chapter 1 is one of those scriptures in my life that settles me down when there's confusion and disillusionment. So I'm going to read all of John 1, verses 1 through 18. We're actually only going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to look at 14 through 18. So let me read it to you for context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, if you grew up in the church, you know that when... John says the word, he's talking about Jesus. It's unmistakable, and he names it at the end of the passage. But let me read how he could have just as easily have written this first verse. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. And then John continues. All things were made through him, through Jesus. All things were made through him. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the life that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, 
yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side He, Jesus, has made God known. When we we hear in the beginning twice in these first two verses of John, John intends that we should think of the in the beginning in Genesis. So the in the beginning was the word is the New Testament equivalent to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But interestingly, the in the beginning in John 1.1 actually predates Genesis 1.1 because when John is talking about the in the beginning, he's actually talking about in the beginning of the very, very, very beginning because what John is talking about predates time and the creation of the universe. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God for all of eternity past. So John's in the beginning predates Genesis in the beginning. And that is vitally important for us to realize when we are deconstructing and reconstructing our faith. Because our faith is not based upon something that happens in time. The Christian faith is based upon the pre-existing Godhead before the creation of time. And so think about what that means for us. I can't prove the point. I wasn't there, you weren't there. But eventually every one of us is going to have to decide what we feel about who Jesus was. Eventually each of us is going to have to decide, do we believe John 1, 1, that he was in the beginning with God and was God? If we don't buy the Trinity of God, pre-existent before the dawn of time, if we don't buy that Jesus is God, then Jesus is just another man who did some stuff and said some stuff. And he has no unique claim to be the center of our lives if he's not the center of the universe. If John 1.1 is not objectively true, we can all freely deconstruct away from Christianity because it's just another man-made religion of trying to make sense of the world and maybe trying to do some good in the world. And I would go a step further and say, (coughs) if Jesus is not objectively, truly, the very Son of God, second person of the Trinity, I actually think we should all deconstruct away from Christianity. Paul says that if 
what Jesus, what we learned about Jesus is not true. We are of all people most to be pitied because we're believing a lie. But it's not just the Apostle John who claimed that Jesus was God. Jesus' closest disciples insisted to their deaths that Jesus was the eternal Son of the Father. Listen to a few scriptures. This is Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews starts out, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Starts to sound like John 1.1. He, Jesus, listen to this, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of power. Then Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, through Jesus, and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You begin to see how Christianity isn't based on things that happen in time. It's based on who Jesus is. When Jesus asked the apostle Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter boldly stated, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus himself in John 14, listen to what he says. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I say to you, do not, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Can you imagine anyone making the audacious claim that whoever has seen me has seen God? Eventually, every one of us needs to decide where we stand on that point, where we stand on the deity of Christ. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, if he's not the second person of the the Trinity who became a man and dwelt among us so that we would see God's glory, then Christianity is just one option. Pick, choose, whatever option. It's just another option in the world. If Jesus is not the center of the universe, there's no reason for him to be the center of our lives. I kind of intuitively and also intentionally return to John chapter 1 in times of confusion in my life because it forces me to grapple with that truth. Who do I say Jesus is? And it is a bizarre claim if it's not true. As one person has said that um, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then his claiming to be the Son of God puts him on the level of someone who claims to be a fried egg. Because if you're not God and you claim to be God, something's seriously wrong with you. If Jesus is truly God in the flesh, it changes everything for all time and eternity. If the first two verses of John's Gospel are true, Our Christian faith doesn't depend on what happens in current events. 
It doesn't depend on what bad things are done in the name of Jesus. It doesn't depend on whether the church has done bad things. It doesn't depend on whether spiritual leaders have done bad things. If John 1, 1 and 2 are objectively true, the Christian faith doesn't depend on traumas that have happened to us or to those that we love. As Pastor Danny said last week, all of those things are important and we should ruthlessly examine them because they will challenge and strengthen our faith. All of those things are important. But if John 1, 1 and 2 is true, then the Christian faith is not dependent on what happens in this world, in the church, or in us. The Christian faith is anchored in Jesus Christ, actually truly being the very Son of God. Which means that if that's true, current events don't define my faith. Christ defines my faith. And then Christ defines current events. When I return to John chapter 1, I realize anew that my faith doesn't depend on whether I'm sad or happy or confused or confident. My Christian faith is anchored in Christ alone, regardless of my emotions or my disillusionment. When I return to John chapter 1, I realize anew that my Christian faith is not built on how much I know, how well I pray, or how much I sin or don't sin, or how much I do spiritual practices. The Christian faith is built not on who I am, or what I know, or what I do. The Christian faith is based on who Jesus is, what Jesus knows, and what Jesus does. All of Christianity is built on that foundation, that in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope you will hear these audacious, bizarre claims and consider whether they might be true. Because if Jesus is the center of the universe, then we're in trouble if he's not also the center of our lives. But I hope that you'll just kind of listen to the claims and then make a decision for yourself. If you grew up in Christianity, this truth is kind of commonplace, even though it's utterly mind-blowingly magnificent. We do well to remember especially in times of deconstruction and reconstruction, we do well to remember that this is where our faith rests. Our understanding may be all messed up. We may be all over the place emotionally, psychologically, relationally with our relationship with the church, but this doesn't change. Jesus, the preexistent son of the Father, who is the Father. And so if you're a believer, I'd like to ask you, to anchor your faith anew in this Jesus. I'd like to ask you, if you believe that Jesus truly is God in the flesh, will you do whatever it takes to make Jesus the center of your life? Make Jesus the center of your studies. Make Jesus the center of your, your work life. Make Jesus the center of your friendships. Make Jesus the center of your dating. Make Jesus the center of your marriage and your family and your free time. Make Jesus the center of your truest self. Make Jesus the center of your sexuality. Make Jesus the center of your worship and your prayer and your politics and your social media. If you truly believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, 
Will you recommit as we start, we're getting ready to start a new year of life together here in Boston? Would you just draw a line in the sand and say, I am committing anew to make Jesus the center of my life. Because when we reconstruct our faith based on the eternal truth of who Jesus is, it doesn't matter what life throws at us. And by the way, life's not going to throw harder and harder things at your generations. It won't matter what life throws at us because our faith is anchored in a timeless, eternal Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. And when we've anchored it there, when all the things come at us, whatever they may be for the, across the decades of our lives, our faith will become purer and stronger and more resilient and more of a shelter for others who need our strength in their lives. So, the first challenge today, will you recommit to make Jesus the center of your life in all things? Well then, in the rest of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, there are like many, many like really amazing threads um, to follow. I mean, there's the whole concept of light and life. The incarnation is there. Believing in Jesus, being received by Jesus, becoming the children of God, singing God's glory. There's, there's all kinds of threads to explore, and it kills me to not like, I just want to look at every single one of them with you. But for the remainder of the message, I just want to pick one thread. And I pick it because when I was kind of working with and kind of immersing in John chapter 1 through from the beginning of last summer, this one kind of popped up. At first I thought, this is too insignificant. It's not, it's not, a, I mean, it's not as great as glory. <laughs> and then I couldn't get away from it. And the more I thought about it, I realized it really shows the beauty of making Jesus Christ the center of our lives. And that thread is grace. Now, there's grace all over in this passage, right? The fact that Jesus would empty himself and become flesh and dwell among us, that's like, we, we, none of us deserve that. That is like astounding, mind-blowing grace right there. The fact that, that if we believe in Jesus, he gives us the right to become children of God, that is a grace that we could never deserve. We would probably never even dream to ask for something that glorious. But there are four times where John specifically uses the word grace. It's in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then verse 16. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And that's this picture of grace stacked on grace stacked on grace stacked on grace stacked. From his fullness, we have all received grace. And then in verse 17, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, again, if you grew up in the church, you are probably overly familiar with that, that word grace. And if you grew up in the church and you were paying attention, then you understand that grace is undeserved favor, Right? something that we couldn't earn and we couldn't demand, it's undeserved favor towards us. And that is a great start to understanding what grace is in the New Testament. But it's way, way more than that. The word grace actually, you know, you can look this up in Bible programs now, 160 times it shows up in the New Testament. And it has this really rich 
depth of meaning. Let me just share part of it. One, um, one Greek dictionary says that grace, the word is charis, if you um, want to know the Greek word, that grace is, quote, that which gives joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, and charm. The root word for the word grace is the word for joy. Another Greek dictionary says that charis, in the sense of beauty, is a quality which is attractive and gives joy, as in the charm of language, or of a masterpiece, or of a conversation, or a garden, or a bath, but especially personal charm, beauty, and friendliness. Same dictionary goes on to says that grace in the sense of favor or love is goodwill, benevolence that finds expression and generosity, love that commands action, but is absolutely free. It means especially the favor of a friend. When John says that Jesus is full of grace, it certainly means that he gives us undeserved favor but it means that he overwhelmingly adores and loves and treasures and cherishes us. Jesus has a grace as part of his character that leads him to see beauty within us, to offer us gentle kindness in everything that we do together. And it's not that Jesus just says a little bit of this. Jesus is full of that grace towards us. Jesus is full of overflowing kindness and affection and goodness towards us. Pause for a section, for a second. Do you hear something different in your head about Jesus? Because a lot of us do. Many people who've grown up in the church hear something like this. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us, full of rules and laws and expectations and restrictions and judgments and demands and disappointment. Do you hear anything like that in your head? By the way, that's not Jesus. That's either your mother or your father or your ex, or it's the enemy, okay? That is not the Jesus of the New Testament. And when you hear those voices, Got to, you've got to substitute them with the actual words of Scripture, that Jesus is full of grace towards us. We kind of, many of us are trained to expect that Jesus disapproves of us and is disappointed in us. But that's not the Jesus of New Testament Christianity. Jesus is truth as well. He's full of grace and truth. There are times when Jesus disciplines us because he loves us too much to let us stay the way that we are. But when John introduces us to the Jesus that he personally knew, he was incredibly impressed with Christ's charm and friendship and favor and kindness and beauty doesn't mean that Jesus is some kind of Santa Claus, that it doesn't matter what we do with him because he is still the second person of the Trinity. But John tells us that Jesus approves of you. He enjoys you. He wants to come alongside you. He wants to be part of your life because he actually loves you. That is the wonderful grace of Jesus.
Would you hear that from John chapter 1 this morning? Would you hear that Jesus is particularly fond of you? Yeah, you're still broken, you're messed up, but that doesn't limit his love. He might love you more because you're confused or broken or in pain right now. But he loves and adores you. That is the Jesus of the New Testament. Do you think we, as individually and as Cornerstone Church, do you think that maybe we could receive more of God's grace? Verse 16 says, For from his fullness, from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's that stacking of grace. Jesus' grace to us is not stingy in any way. It's actually embarrassingly loving. Some of us aren't used to anybody loving us like that. It makes us shy. But Jesus isn't stingy with his fondness and affection towards us. He wants to pour out this goodness upon you because God wins us first with his love before he has to discipline us. He's always trying to, to draw us with his affection first. And John reiterates it in verse 17 when he says that the law, that's those rules and the judgment and resulting disapproval and disappointment that we expected from God. John says that law, that came from Moses. But grace and truth came from Christ. So I have three questions for us this morning as we wrap up. And then I'm going to give you a chance to kind of think about God's grace, the grace of Jesus in your life. First question, can we at Cornerstone personally receive more of the grace and goodness of Jesus individually in our lives? Could we just focus on it? Could we open our hearts? Could we immerse in the scriptures and see the incredible, glorious grace of Jesus? We have to fix our broken images of God, of a disapproving deity that somehow is unhappy with us because we sin too much or we don't do enough good, we don't pray enough, we don't read the Bible enough, we don't go to church enough, and then we think that he must always be frustrated with us. Can we fix that cornerstone? Can we each strive to receive the affection of Jesus for us? The Jesus who is full of grace? Second question, can we individually and as Cornerstone Church, can we receive the grace of God so richly for ourselves that we become full of grace for each other? When we get our feelings hurt, when we feel neglected or overlooked, when we are actually sinned against, when we're disappointed with each other here at Cornerstone Church, can we be, have so received the grace of God for ourselves that we give grace upon grace to each other so that when there's disruption and hurt in our community, it's not seen as something that is shocking to us, it's seen as an opportunity, oh good, I get to then express the grace of God to my brothers and sisters like Jesus has expressed it to me. Then the third question, so the first one is for us individually, second one is for us as a community, and the third one, can we receive the grace of Jesus so much that we become full of grace for people who we don't like or who are not like us? Can we 
give Christ-like grace and loving kindness and goodness and joy to people who don't vote like us, people who don't look like us, people who don't value what we value, people who don't live like us, and people who don't believe what we believe? Can we receive the grace of Jesus so much that we can't help but pour it out on the world around us? So I'd like to give you two minutes to reflect on the grace of Jesus in your life. So we'll put up the screen of the questions. And all, all I want to do is just have you be still for a moment. And then, you know what, I don't care which ones you respond to, okay? Respond to whatever you sense the Spirit is drawing you towards. And I'll keep track of time. I'll give you two full minutes just to reflect on how the grace of Jesus is touching your life. I'll begin with just a one-sentence prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you as John has revealed you to us. Will you spend these two minutes with us and help us experience the loveliness of your grace? And now just be with Jesus in these two minutes. Fifteen more seconds.
Amen. As you are trying to build a better faith and a better church and a better you, I think you'll be blessed if you can think through your relationship with grace. I don't want a faith that is based on current events or on what people do to me or around me. I don't want my faith to be based on my situational, emotional, or psychological condition. I want a faith grounded in something eternal. And according to John chapter 1, it all comes down to Jesus. So, if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, then do whatever you want with Christ and the church. It really doesn't matter, because it's an option as good as any other. But if we trust that Jesus is who he said he was and who his friends all believed that he was, it changes everything. And here's what just strikes me as glorious beyond words. It graces everything in our lives. Absolutely everything feels the touch of the goodness of Jesus towards us. So there's an old hymn that I would be surprised if any of you know. It's, um, it's called Wonderful Grace of Jesus. And this is just the first verse. It goes like this. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Cornerstone Church, this year let's try to become a people of fullness of grace and a church of fullness of grace because Jesus loves us so much. Amen.